If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You'll have to pardon us. We're operating on about uh, four hours of sleep. Uh, We were up really late last night. Uh, A very bizarre situation. Well, we should probably start at the beginning. Our neighbor, who is a classic Mainer, classic guy from Maine, um, he owns a small island in front of our house on the lake. And it's maybe what, I don't know, four or five acres. It's it's just a small little island. Well, a couple of winters ago, when the when the ice was frozen over on the lake, he decided he was gonna drive his camper over there yeah. on the ice and put it up on the um uh, on the island. The town was like, No, don't do that. But by that time it was spring, so he was like, Ma, how do you expect me to get it up? <laughs> I asked him, I said, uh, how did you get your camper over there? He's like Oh, Jesus, I just hooked her up to the truck and gunned her. <laughs> Got a bit stoved up there on the way up over the hill. but Either way, uh, we were uh, settling in for a long winter's nap, and I thought, geez, it seems bright in here. Yeah, what what is going on? Is fireworks or something? And and- yes, we had stayed up unusually late as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, we so- were watching videos of Epcot at night. Anyway, um, so I got up and I looked out the patio door and I couldn't quite figure out what was happening. I felt out of my face come, <laughs> Jeebus, it's on fire. <laughs> uh, so I called 911. Mm-hmm, again. And they were like... Hello, Katrina. And I was like, yes, it's it's fire this time. Mm-hmm. The camper that has been sitting on the island for years was engulfed in flames. Engulfed in flames. The, uh, it, it appeared as though the propane bottle had ruptured and this like fire Shooting breathing. Bursty. Oh, my God. It was like <laughs> probably 40 feet in the air. I looked at the video that I took. Uh, from last night, and I was going to share it, but I can't because of the huge number of profanities. <laughs> uh, throughout the whole thing, I'm just going, Jesus Christ, and you're going, fucking propane, Bob. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is um, last night was a romantic night when we fell asleep to the glow of a, of a roaring camper fire. Oh, listen, I did not sleep until all I saw was the fireman's flashlights. I sat on the edge of the bed and I just watched the fire go out bit by bit by yeah, bit. Yeah. And eventually I was like, okay, there's two bits left. I swear I can make it. And by that time it was like 3 a.m. And to give you an idea, it, it wasn't an island way out in the middle of the lake. It's maybe a hundred yards from our house. It's <laughs> well, no, it's a hundred yards from the, the, from the water shore, frontage. From the shoreline. So, which, yeah. which our house is then an additional hundred yeah. yards or so. Oh, it is an exciting place to live. Oh, goodness. Indeed. All right, I go first today. Oh, what have you got <laughs> for me? Mm-hmm. In 1965, a company known as the Atsuka Pharmaceutical Company began manufacturing a health tonic, which was known as Oranamin C. Okay, can you say the name of the company and the product three times fast? No. <laughs> Oranamin C became a very popular, not really an energy drink, more of a health tonic kind of thing, sure. across Japan, right after it launched in the mid-60s, and remained popular for several decades, and it's actually still a best-selling health drink formula in Japan, but mostly for middle-aged to elderly people. People, it was more. It's more of a nostalgia thing for them now. Oh, nice! Kind uh, of like Ovaltine. Twenty years later, in the uh, mid '80s, in the early to mid '80s, uh, the product was still loved by older generations. Younger markets preferred the sweeter sodas, like you know, Coke was making a big impact. Sure. Um, they didn't really care for the for the health drinks. So as part of a promotion, Otsuka Pharmaceutical began offering free bottles of Oranomen C in vending machines. The drink would be dispensed when a customer made a purchase. Some people would be very happy with the, uh, with the drink, mostly the middle-aged to elderly people. Sure. Young kids didn't really care about it, so they would just leave, leave it, it on top of the vending on, machine. Leave it on top of the vending <laughs> yep. machine. It's like what I do with junk mail. Yeah. I just leave it on top of the mailbox. There you go. Ma'am, I did not ask for this. So they programmed the vending machines every time somebody made a purchase to dispense the drink that they wanted, but then this bottle of the health drink. And it would inevitably end up on top of the machine or beside the machine. For people who couldn't afford drinks and perhaps bargain hunters, freebies were greatly appreciated. They were usually scoffed up pretty quickly. On April 30th of 1985, a 45-year-old truck driver from Fukuyama bought a drink from a vending machine in the city. On top of the machine was a bottle of Oranomen C, which he took along with his purchase and later consumed. He quickly became seriously ill, showing symptoms of severe poisoning, oh, no. including internal chemical burns. <gasps> oh. Tests showed that he had ingested the chemical paraquat, which is used to kill weeds. It's a freaking weed killer. It's extremely toxic. Just two teaspoons of the substance will quickly and very painfully kill a human being. Oh, no. Despite the best efforts of the medical staff, the man died of his internal injuries exactly one month later. Analysis of his vomit showed traces of paraquat, which is banned in 32 countries around the world. I can't say I dig on any weed killers. Um, I just don't like the idea of like, hey, I'm going to just dump poison in my yard. <laughs> it just seems wrong. Yeah. It seems wrong. They discovered remnants, traces of the uh, of the weed killer in the empty bottle of Oronomen C. 
Uh, so they began testing bottles at the factory. Right. Well, the question is, if it was left on top of the vending machine, was it in the bottle when it came from the factory or did it get put in the bottle and then left on top of the vending machine? That's exactly what they were about to discover. There was no tampering. Um, investigators were baffled as to how the substance came to be in that drink. They didn't put the pieces together that uh, people were just leaving bottles on the machines. Right. And so apparently what was happening, somebody was tampering with bottles of, of Oranam and C and then just leaving them on the uh, vending machines. According to the New York Times, Haruo Atsu went fishing one morning, stopped along the way for drinks at a vending machine. Among his purchases were two bottles of the, quote, health tonic. Halfway through the second bottle, Mr. Otsu, 52 years old, started to feel sick. A few hours later, he was taken to the hospital near his house. The next night, he stopped breathing. Oh, jeez. In September of the same year, the poison drinks began appearing on or next to vending machines around all parts of Japan, especially in and around the Hiroshima Prefecture. Most were bottles of Oranaman C, but occasionally a can of cola would show up too. On September 11th of 85, a man found and consumed a bottle of Oranoman C, along with a second that he purchased. He died three days later from Paraquat poisoning. I mean, don't drink things that you find. That's just... That was the mid-80s. Everybody just... You haven't gone through the, the entire list of... Victims, I assume, but so far it's not been a single woman. And that's because women don't drink strange <laughs> drinks. We've been to bars enough times to know. <laughs> you are very insightful. Yeah, it was mostly, it's mostly men. I'm going down through the list here. Over two months, September 12th, a 22 year old college student, male. Uh, September 19th, a 30 year old man. September 20th, 45-year-old man. Uh, September 23rd, 50-year-old man. October 5th, 44-year-old man. October 15th, a 69-year-old man. Holy wow. October 21st, a 55-year-old man. October 28th, a 50-year-old man. Are all of these people dying? Yes. Oh, no. November 7th, 42-year-old man. And then our final victim was a 17-year-old girl. The last one was a 17-year-old girl. Aww. She uh, purchased an unnamed drink from a vending machine, but also found a can of cola in the dispensing slot. A week later, she passed away. Traces of Paraquat found in the beverage remnants. Probably the same person responsible for this, but uh, there is some question because it was uh, a cola and not Oronomen, Oron, Oronomen C. O.C. Let's call it O.C. O.C. it is. So 12 confirmed poisonings, probably 13. And to give you a better understanding of the effects of Paraquat, even on the surface of the skin, exposure to Paraquat causes arrhythmia, followed by blistering and hemorrhaging diabrosis, which is a, a real fancy way of saying chemical burns affecting the blood vessel walls. Oh. When ingested, Paraquat is downright lethal. Death is swift, certain. It's incredibly agonizing. The poison causes rapid inflammation of tissue surrounding major blood vessels and airways and literally burns holes through the victim's throat. Oh, my goodness. It eats right through. Does it not have a taste? Apparently not enough of a taste to keep people from finishing most of the drink. 
So they put up signs on vending machines warning people not to take drinks unless they were directly dispensed from the machine. And police worked pretty hard to find clues that would lead them to the culprit. Yet uh, the murders continued for, for two months. Oh my God. And then they just stopped. The victims were male with the exception of that last one, which is an interesting thing that you pointed out that you just assume because somebody was taking and drinking stuff out of a machine that they didn't pay for it was a guy. You were um, almost entirely correct. I'm not trying to stereotype or anything. It's just I think that women can sometimes tend to be a little more cautious. Mm. Some have suggested that they, they could have been deliberately targeted, though it's hard to see how that would have been achieved yeah. with the random nature of the killer's method. It may be just that men were more disposed to taking free drinks. That's what the police department's official stance was. My first thought is that the OC company is trying to make a comeback, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe like the owner of another company, ha you know, didn't want them to. I have, have I watched too many episodes of Scooby-Doo? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Now, this case is eerily similar to the Tylenol murders that yeah. took place uh, about three years earlier in Chicago here in the U.S. Seven people died from cyanide poisoning after consuming uh, Tylenol. No culprit was ever found. After the Tylenol mur murders, there were a series of similar drug tampering incidents, including some murders. And they called them, of course, copycat attacks. And this was also inspiration for copycat crimes. The randomness of the killings and the inability of the police to catch those responsible spread a lot of concern throughout Japan. Uh, one byproduct has been, according to the New York Times, a spurt of copycat crimes. Uh, for example, someone left tainted containers of milk in schools oh. in central Japan. Milk is especially something that you should not drink. Just left just out. Just having been left around. Yeah, I would agree. I can't, anything creamy, I can't leave the room and come back to a drink if it's creamy. I don't know why. I think things can hide in it. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, I know you're even reluctant to take uh, mayonnaise packets at a restaurant. You don't even, it's been sitting out. Well, it's here. Yeah, I don't like that. I'm not, I'm not eating like that. that. Yeah. It's not clear how much these people were influenced by uh, one of the more bizarre crimes in recent history, the attempted extortion of food companies by a group calling itself the Mystery Man with 21 Faces. This happened about a year prior to the uh, beverage poisonings. For more than a year, starting in the spring of 84, this group threatened to poison targeted companies' products unless it received sizable cash payments. The extortionists went as far as to put cyanide-treated candies on I, supermarket shelves. I was thinking extortion. Well, what was weird about this is that this group, the uh, mystery man with 21 faces, did poison candy, but then clearly labeled the boxes saying, the, there are poison in these boxes, don't eat them. No harm was done except... You know, maybe the pride of the police department. They were stumped. They couldn't figure it out. Nobody was was injured during this man of 21 mystery face thing took place. What was the purpose of? They were just trying to extort money, oh, okay. I, I guess. Now, so what's going on with these Japanese vending machine murders? couple of theories. The man with 21 faces, the mystery man of 21 faces theory is that um, the incident, that incident may have been a diversion leading to the vending machine murders. They could have been linked. The period of activity of the 20 faces group coincides with the beginning of the vending machine murders. Both involve poisoned perishables. There is a theory out there that uh, they got the police looking in this direction mm. and then went in for the kill on the vending machines, which is... Weird, but 
that's the best they could do. The only other theory that they had, the murders were the work of one or more Yukahan. According to a Japanese mental health specialist at a Tokyo university, Yukaihen are thrill-seeking criminals that cynically enjoy superiority by imagining the victims groaning and do not feel any remorse. The theory that these murders could have been carried out by one or more individuals that take a sadistic delight in picturing the suffering of their victims seems more than plausible, given the paraquat paraquat poisoning is is agonizing beyond words and Mm. would most likely elicit a pretty strong reaction. Sadly, investigations into all of these random killings came to a grinding halt pretty early on. There just wasn't enough evidence. There was no DNA testing at that point. In fact, the first DNA testing case was maybe a year or so after that. It appears that we might never know the truth because not only did the case go cold a long time ago, the statute of limitations on poisoning in Japan is set at only 15 years. So somebody got away with murder. I don't, can someone explain to me what the point of statute of limitations are? I mean, in, in what scenario is that beneficial to anyone? I really can't think of anything right offhand that was a law and is still a law regardless of how much time has passed that you could just kind of say, well, it's, you know, it's been 10 years. So right. the hell with it. The bulk of my information came from CNN, cool, interesting stuff, Reddit and the New York Times, the Japanese vending machine murders. Well, I don't like that. There was no resolution to none, that. None. Yeah, none it's a bummer. Unsolved mystery. It stinks. And now, that thing in the middle. Thing in the middle, people were asked to give their home states honest state mottos. Number five, California. You can't afford to live here. (laughs) That reminds me of the conversation that we had with the bartender in San Francisco, and I was yelling at him, I paid $37 for a frittata. That would be a great state motto as well. (laughs) It was ridiculous. Number four, Maine. No, you're thinking of Massachusetts. Maine is further north. No, that's New Hampshire. You know what? Forget it. That is so true. It is accurate. Number three, Michigan. Road construction. Next 300 miles. (laughs) Number two, Idaho. We're the gem state, damn it. Potatoes aren't our only specialty. And number one, Illinois. If it ain't Chicago, it's corn. (laughs) The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. 
What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There once was a podcast from Nantucket. Okay, can't finish that one. This is The Box of Oddities. Gil sent us an email at curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hi, Kat and Jethro. Want to tell you something weird slash funny that happened to me. Back in 2008, I used to play bass for a rock band at a club, and one night, almost after we were finished playing, I received a call letting me know that a relative was in the hospital. So, as you can imagine, I went to the hospital to check on my relative, who at the time was in the ER. There, while I was waiting to hear about their status, a woman kept looking at me in a very strange way, and I don't mean in a flirtatious way. It was in a weird, eerie kind of way, almost like she was in awe. After making me feel very uncomfortable for several minutes with her looks, the woman approached me and in a very chilling voice said, You're him, right? Yes. Yes, you are him. Scared as fuck, I asked her, who? Who am I? While nodding my head, no. She stood right in front of me, putting her eyes just in front of mine, whispering while she sniffed at me and said, You are the glow man. Yes. 
And here you are. You are the glow man. She started shouting and running around the place excitedly. As you can imagine, I was shocked and very, very confused. Anyway, if you or any other members of the community of freaks know who the glow man is, I would really appreciate knowing a bit more about this glow man. Signed, Gil, not the glow man. (laughs) That is creepy. Indeed. When somebody comes up to me and gets right in my face and sniffs. No, thank you. (laughs) You are the glow man. I would shit my drawers. I would fudge my linens. So what you got for me? Oh, a pilsner. (laughs) Victor Lustig was born in Austria-Hungary. He was exceptionally gifted at learning throughout his youth. And in recently uncovered papers, he describes his father and mother as the poorest peasant people who raised him in a grim house made from stone, which I think sounds cute, but that's not the point. At the age of 19, while taking a break from his studies in Paris, Lustig took to gambling. And during this time, he received a scar on the left side of his face from the jealous boyfriend of a woman he was consorting with. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Consorting was happening. He had a consorting scar. Victor progressed from panhandler to pickpocket to burglar to street hustler. He claimed that he stole to survive, but only from the greedy or dishonest. So kind of a Robin Hood Kind of Kind of guy. Yeah. But Victor was considered a smoothie who never held a gun and enjoyed mounting butterflies in his spare time. Wait a minute. Now, when you say mounting butterflies, no, that's anatomically impossible. Go ahead. Victor found some success as a con man early on in his career on ocean liners sailing between the Atlantic ports of France and New York City. So among those schemes that he pulled on rich travelers included one where he posed as a musical producer who sought investment in a Broadway production that didn't exist. When World War I hit, Victor moved to the United States and entered into various schemes, including one he conducted in 1922, in which he conned a bank into giving him money for a portion of bonds he was offering for uh, repossessed property. And then he used sleight of hand to escape with both the payment and the bonds. Okay. But in 1925, France was recovering from World War I, and Paris was booming. At the time, the Eiffel Tower, though, had begun to fall into disrepair. And city government was concerned about the impending costs of maintaining the monument. Mm. It was noted in a newspaper article that overall public opinion about the Eiffel Tower uh, would move toward calls for its removal. Uh, The people of the city weren't terribly attached to it. In the beginning, it wasn't intended to be a permanent installation anyway. It was part of the world's exposition. So uh, people were kind of like, yeah, we don't want to pay to keep this. Mm. Well, and it was considered ugly at the time, too. Just these raw girders out in the middle of nowhere. Girder's a fun word. It is. Yeah, rotary girder. So Victor had always claimed to hail from a long line of aristocrats who owned European castles. The New York Times editorialized that he was not the hand-kissing type of bogus count. He was too keen for that. Instead of theatrical, he was always reserved and a dignified nobleman. Okay. The true meaning of a confidence man. Sure. So when he, uh, with commissioned stationery carrying the official French government seal, presented himself at the front desk of the Hotel de Crillon, 
They were, of course, accommodating. Mm. From there, he pretended to be a French government official. He wrote to the top people in the French scrap metal industry, inviting them to the hotel for a meeting. (laughs) This is according to the Smithsonian Magazine. He identified himself to them as the deputy director general of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. And in that meeting, he convinced the men that the upkeep of the Eiffel Tower was becoming too much for the city and that the French government wished to sell it for scrap. A limousine was hired, there was a tour of the tower, and Victor pulled off a masterful performance. He noted to the potential buyers that, of course, a a deal would be controversial and likely spark public outcry. Mm -hmm. So no one was to say anything about the deal until the plan was finalized. He revealed to them that he was in charge of selecting the dealer who would receive ownership of the structure, claiming that the group had been selected carefully because of their reputations as honest businessmen. Uh His speech included genuine insight about the monument's place in the city, how it didn't fit in with the other monuments. It just didn't make sense, and the city was, was just done with it. This guy put on a performance, it sounds like. Indeed. During his time with the dealers, Victor found his mark, André Poisson, who he thought was an insecure man who wished to rise amongst the inner circles of the Parisian business community. So after the quote-unquote bids came in, Victor arranged a private meeting with Poisson and convinced him that he was actually a corrupt official. He <laughs> he was going to be clean with him, all right? Uh-huh. Listen, the government doesn't pay me enough money, and I believe that if I am the person who can secure this sale, then I will be seen as as a good, solid businessman in the city. <laughs> so he used this position as being kind of a disgruntled city employee to gain the confidence of a man who was trying to become... This guy is brilliant and evil, mostly evil. So the plan was that Poisson would pay a large bribe to secure ownership of the Eiffel Tower. Basically, he was bribing Victor as a member of the city's government Mm -hmm. to secure that he would be the one who could buy it. Gotcha. It ended up being around 70,000 francs. Victor uh, settled on that amount just before tootling away to Austria. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Victor suspected that when Poisson found that he had been conned, he would be too embarrassed to inform police of what had happened. Sure. And after some time of seeing nothing in the papers, Victor tootled back to Paris and was surprised and very pleased to discover that that was exactly the case. Wow. Poisson was so bummed that he had been sucked into this con Mm. that he didn't tell anyone about it. He was just like, all right, I guess I'm out 70. 70 grand. So that was really brilliant on the part of the con. To loop him into right. somebody who maldoings. Want, right. He, and, and not only that, but somebody who he knew was, tr- was insecure uh-huh. and trying to work his way up in society. The last person in the world that would want to appear to be a fool yep. in front of his peers. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. So Victor gathered up his counterfeit documents and approached a new set of scrap dealers. <laughs> no. He found another Mark who agreed to buy the Eiffel Tower. This is twice he sold the Eiffel Tower. But the police this time were informed about the scam and he fled to the United States to evade arrest. So he didn't get the money the second time. He did not. But he got away. Yeah. Okay. 
I don't think he got the money the second time. He did He did find a buyer, mm. but I don't know if that money... Transaction had yeah, taken place. Yeah, I'm not place. sure. Okay. So anyway, in the States, he took to selling unsuspecting marks a box that he claimed was a machine that could duplicate any currency bills that were inserted <laughs> into it. The old magic box scam. Oh, you know. One of those marks was a Texas sheriff who he'd convinced to buy the box for thousands of dollars. Upon realizing that he'd been tricked, the sheriff followed Victor to Chicago. Upon meeting him again, the sheriff was talked into believing that he just wasn't operating the device correctly (laughs) and was handed a large sum of cash as compensation. Hey, sorry you uh, had to follow me all the way to Chicago. Mm. Uh, Maybe I wasn't clear enough about how to use this box. But yeah, if you use it the right way, it'll absolutely work. But here's some some dollars for your troubles. I see. Turns out those were counterfeit dollars. Oh, my God. Yeah. When the Great Depression hit, Victor concocted a very risky scam aimed at Al Capone. Oh, my. It was really a pretty nutty scam. And by nutty, I mean ballsy for a very small amount of cash. So Victor asked Capone to invest $50,000 in a scheme. Capone agreed. Victor then kept the money in a safe deposit box for two months before returning the full amount to Capone, saying that the deal had fallen through. So Capone got the impression that he was dealing with an honest guy. Okay. Wow. So at this point, Victor said, hey, I'm really sorry that this didn't work out. Uh, Because this fell through, I've not got anything to support myself with. It's a real bummer. I got to tell you what. Mm -hmm. Do you mind giving me $1,000? Now, some claim it was $5,000. So the dollar amount is iffy. But either way, it was $1,000 or $5,000. And that was it? That was it. The the whole con. The whole con. That's stupid. Even in 1930s money, that's stupid. I think he just wanted to con Al Capone. To to be able to know that he conned Al Capone. Okay. But like so many, Victor's undoing would be at the hands of a scorned woman. So apparently Victor's lady, Billy May, found that he had been betraying her for the young mistress of a business associate. So she placed an anonymous call to the federal authorities. (laughs) Wikipedia shows that on May 10, 1935, Victor was arrested in New York and charged with counterfeiting. The day before his trial, he escaped from the Federal House of Detention in New York City by faking an illness and using a specially made rope to climb out of the building. Oh, my God. I know. He's not only smooth, he's slippery. (laughs) He was recaptured 27 days later in Pittsburgh. Victor pleaded guilty at his trial and was sentenced to 15 years in prison on Alcatraz for his original charge and another five years for his prison escape. Did he end up on Alcatraz the same time as Al Capone? That would have been, (laughs) hey, here's your new cellmate. Oh, fuck. What a great ending that would be. He used 47 aliases and carried dozens of fake passports. In fact, his true identity does remain shrouded in mystery. Hmm. On his Alcatraz paperwork, prison officials called him Robert V. Miller, which is just one of his pseudonyms. And he ended up dying of pneumonia in prison. But there is a set of 10 commandments for con men, instructions uh, for those to follow uh, that he left that are attributed to Victor Victor Lustig. Carved in his cell wall? (laughs) I don't think so. 
be a patient listener is number one. Number two, never look bored. Number three, wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions and then agree with them. <laughs> Number five, let the other person reveal religious views, and then you have those same ones. Number six, hint at sex talk, but don't follow up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Number six, never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Number seven, never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They will tell you all eventually anyway. Number eight, never boast. Let your importance be quietly obvious. Number nine, never be untidy. And most importantly, number 10, never get drunk. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, the list should have included never cheat on the person who knows your shady dealings. <laughs> yeah. So it, sh- it should it have been worked. 11. Should have been 11 should things 11. instead of 10. Yeah. That guy's fascinating. So there though. you go. That's Victor Lustig, wow. the man who sold the Eiffel Tower twice. And those commandments that he wrote down, they're just good people skills. <laughs> Really? Right? You know? It could have been in, uh, what's that book about manipulating people? Oh, and, Dale Carnegie. Yeah, that yeah, one. Win friends and influence people. It's not manipulation. AKA manipulate it's people. It's not manipulate. It's, it 100% it, it's is. influence. <laughs> it's trying to make them the best person they can be. That's, That's gross. <laughs> what you just said. Whatever. <laughs> um, that is fascinating. Yeah, really I is. thought so. So, uh, Yeah. Wanted to real quick thank everyone who uh, sent us gifties this week. We did get a lot of special attention, <laughs> <and> lovely <laughs> gifts, and we we thank you so much. Just, it, everything's so appreciated, and and your your thoughtful, heartfelt remarks are very uh, appreciated yeah, as well. We, we if we have not got back to you, if you send us uh, an email or a or a message about Willie, and we've not gotten back to you, please understand that we have read them all. Um, but and we really do appreciate it. I hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of honestly, of I just don't have the emotional capacity to. I am lucky to be getting out of bed. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, yeah. <laughs> but we're doing we're doing okay. We're doing okay, and and we do appreciate all the love from the Freak family. Um, it has helped so much. Yeah, you guys are the best. We really, really do appreciate you. It's. Um, I mean, I knew there was an amazing community there already Mm. but this has really kind of blown my mind a little bit yeah i didn't expect this kind of outpouring and it's just really nice yeah you guys are okay yep yep we do love you and we look forward to seeing you next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Do you love 
love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.